registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Galland. It's wonderful to have you, and um, how are you doing today? Doing great, thanks. Yeah. Are you in New York, or are you somewhere? Well, I'm outside the city right now. Okay. Basically, my practice is in New York. Okay, so you're still doing the one-on-one private practice. Yeah, yeah, I've been a solo practitioner for a long time. Yeah, wonderful. So I'm really excited to talk about the connection between COVID-19 and the gut microbiome, which I know you have done tons of research into. um, and, And actually, it seems as if you also have a protocol um, on your website um, for COVID-19 as well. Is that correct? Well, I, what I've been posting for over a year now is something I call the Coronavirus Guidebook, which is available on my website. It's gotten longer and longer. <laughs> and I spend uh, every day I review the what's coming out in the research literature and uh, periodically update the protocol. And it looks at all aspects of this pandemic and the virus um, from the perspective of uh, prevention and treatment and, and um, modification of symptoms, mitigation. Um, along the way, I have been waiting for research on the microbiome to emerge. I started looking at it a year ago because I was sure there was a connection. It's just that For the first few months, there was just a lot of speculation. Mm. And uh, then finally, some actual actual data began to appear. Uh, And that actual data is based on people who have been hospitalized. So we can't say for sure that it would apply to people who are not as sick. Mm. But but a lot of it makes sense in terms of mitigating the impact of the infection Mm. rather than preventing the infection altogether. And I think a good deal of it is applicable to the care of people who are the so-called long haulers. Mm. Um, That is people who have had COVID haven't really gotten well. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I'm applying the work with the microbiome in my care of those patients as, um, as well. And I, I think actually, that's going to be a problem that will be with us for some time. Mm. Uh, the um, people who have had COVID and now have a post-viral syndrome mm-hmm. that's not resolving. Sure. Um, so getting into the work on the microbiome itself, the first finding, not really surprising, mm. um, was that people who were sick with COVID-19 have drastic alterations in the bacterial populations living in their GI tract as measured with uh, stool uh, DNA testing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are are 
100 trillion bacteria that normally live in your gut. And there are thousands of species and more strains. And they interact with one another in very complex ways that support your health. Or when they're out of balance, can negatively impact your health. And not just GI health, also um, brain health um, and immune function. Um, and a few years ago, I published a paper called The Gut Microbiome in the Brain that reviewed all of the human research in that fascinating area up to that time. And that was maybe five years ago. There's been so much more published since then. Um, so what happens with COVID-19 is there is a reduction in the richness and the diversity of the bacterial species in the gut. And the species that are most impacted by this are those that tend to have an anti-inflammatory effect in the body. Mm. So aside from the decrease in the variety of organisms, there's a a relative increase in the ratio of pro-inflammatory to anti-inflammatory organisms. Mm. That's not actually very surprising. Uh, on a couple of levels. One is that the, ba- the virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, does invade the gut. Um, there are receptors for it in the small and large intestine. Um, and it is, it, uh, The way that it gets into cells is by attaching to an enzyme called ACE2. Mm. And there's uh, abundant ACE2 in the lining of the small intestine and the large intestine. There's something unique about ACE2 in the small intestine. It is a chaperone for the transport of amino acids. Now, when the virus attacks, attaches to it, it winds up being inactivated. So you can actually get impairment of amino acid absorption. The single amino acid that is the most affected in animal studies, we haven't been able to do this in humans yet, is tryptophan. Mm-hmm. So if you inactivate ACE2 in the uh, intestines of mice or rats in a laboratory, you can produce a deficiency of tryptophan and the neurotransmitter that is derived from it, which is serotonin. Mm-hmm. Now, serotonin in the gut plays an important role in the immune function of the gut. So the serotonin deficiency produces a deficiency of proteins called defensins that protect the gut from bacterial infection and that regulate the composition of the microbiome. So it's not surprising that you would get an abnormal pro-inflammatory bacterial microbiome if you've had COVID-19. The other thing that was more surprising is there was a group that looked at the fungal part of the microbiome called Mm -hmm. the mycobiome. And they actually found... Um, a kind of opposite effect. There was an increase in diversity and richness of the mycobiome Mm. in the the stool of patients who'd had COVID-19. And there were three fungal species that particularly took advantage. They were opportunists that overgrew. One shouldn't surprise anybody. It's Candida albicans. Um, You know, that's a very common yeast. It's a cause of GI symptoms. Uh, um, 
It's a cause of vaginitis in women. It causes thrush in the mouth. And people who are sensitive to it can have a wide range of symptoms. I've been dealing with candida overgrowth in the gut with patients for over 40 years, I'd say, at this point. And um, and the, the wide range of effects that can have uh, is quite extraordinary. Food intolerance, um, um, immune effects, effects on the skin, the joints, the muscles, um, the brain. So that certainly is something that needs to be looked at in COVID long haulers. Uh, the second organism that opportunists that overgrew in these individuals was a related yeast called Candida auris, mm. A-U-R-I-S. Now, a couple of years ago, I had all sorts of patients calling up panicked about Candida auris because it was getting headlines as this drug-resistant invasive yeast that was killing people in hospitals all over the world. So it's kind of a scary organism. And, um, and then the third one is a mold called Aspergillus flavus. Now, Aspergillus molds are uh, toxic. That is, they produce um, neurotoxins, and they're also highly allergenic. So definitely looking at the impact of COVID-19 on the mycobiome, the yeast and, and fungi, growing in the gut, I think is an important thing. And I think it's especially important for people who are symptomatic having recovered from COVID-19. Mm. Okay. Um, so that's, that was the first body of research to appear. And I thought that there were some pretty significant and exciting findings there. Then there were researchers that attempted to stratify how sick people were with what their gut microbiomes. Mm, I like. did see this, yeah. Yeah, and and the question was, does that give any insight into how someone's microbiome may impact on their degree of illness? Is it just a result of how sick you are, or is it actually contributing? Uh, and there were two really interesting findings that um, that led me to decide to post this gut microbiome and COVID-19 on my website is a separate document. It's included in the coronavirus guide, but I thought it was important enough that people should just be able to find it. Uh, there is a particular species of beneficial gut microbe uh, with a very difficult name called Fecalobacterium prasnitsi that is depleted. That is, in the people who are sicker, the ones who wind up on ventilators, um, people who die, um, people who need intensive care, the levels of F. prausnitzi are lower than in people who are hospitalized and don't get so sick. And F. prausnitzi is what's called a keystone microbe. That is, it holds together a whole cluster of anti-inflammatory bacteria. Mm in the GI tract. And uh, so it seems to me that encouraging its growth as a preventive measure in advance is a good thing to do. And, and actually, there's, that's something that I try to do with patients anyway. 
um, because this is a really beneficial organism. Yeah, and this is and this is correct me if I'm wrong. This is a species that's it's protective of things like inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's disease, as well. Is that correct? Oh yeah, in in uh, in Crohn's disease, the presence of uh, like someone has surgery for Crohn's disease, mm-hmm. the risk of their relapse is directly related to the absence of F. Prasnitsi. Wow. Um, so it's an important anti-inflammatory species, and it works. It actually supports the growth of bifidobacteria. Okay, which we know um, is so very important. Right. Yeah, they, they support each other. Um, so that, I think, is a very important finding. And I'll, I'll talk about steps I have, I would recommend to my patients for encouraging its growth. Then there was another study, which was... Uh, the largest one, which came out of uh, UMass and Worcester. Most of the other research was done in China. This was done in Massachusetts. And there was a particular organism that was overgrown in the stool tests and also oral swabs of people who did worse with COVID-19. Um, and that's a type of bacteria called Enterococcus fecalis. Mm-hmm. Now, Enterococcus fecalis is a common organism in the GI tract. Um, it has, it's a very strong pro-inflammatory bacteria. And um, in fact, there are certain probiotics that is used, incorporated in Enterococcus fecalis, because it really stimulates the release by the immune system of gamma interferon. Now, the problem in COVID-19 is that once the disease is established, gamma interferon contributes to the cytokine storm that makes people very sick. You don't want more gamma interferon. What you really want is alpha interferon, which is both anti-inflammatory and antiviral. But this virus, SARS-CoV-2, has a way to prevent your body from making alpha interferon. It has more than one way. And, and the ability of the virus to dodge the alpha interferon response that your body would normally make is part of what makes it so dangerous. Mm. And then when, when that fails, that's kind of like the first line of defense, then other parts of the immune system kick in and create the cytokine storm and gamma interferon as part of that. Uh, so minimizing the growth and activity of enterococcus fecalis in the mouth and in the GI tract is important, especially for treatment if someone's already sick. And then the question becomes, what role does, is this playing after infection is cleared? We don't know that yet. Hmm. Um, in the mouth, Enterococcus fecalis is a pathogen, and it's best known for contributing to failed root canals. Hmm gets into the root canal, it just destroys it. It creates too much inflammation. So um, among the, the measures that a person can take to encourage the growth of fecalobacterium prasnitsi and discourage the growth of enterococcus fecalis, they're the following. Uh, one, from a dietary perspective, a diet that is not only high in fiber, and fruits and vegetables, but in resistant starch and in polyphenols. Mm-hmm. 
mm. flavonoids and, uh, you know, other um, phytochemicals that are normally found in fruits and vegetables and herbs and spices. Uh, thyme and oregano are good sources of those. Uh, so um, I, that's the kind of diet that I encourage for most of my patients anyway. I think it's especially important in the face of the pandemic. Can I also make a point too? I just, sure. I know that I specifically work with people. And if you say thyme and oregano, someone might run out and buy oil of oregano or something like that, which is a very powerful antimicrobial and can, you know, also have the opposite effect. So are you specifically referring to foods or are you? I'm referring- talking about food. Okay. Yeah, I'm talking about food. I'm not talking about um, concentrated supplements. Now, there, um, in terms of supplements, there are a couple of probiotic bacteria that in, have been shown to encourage the growth of F. prasinitsi. You're not going to find a, a pill of Cecalobacterium prasinitsi. It is not stable enough to survive the process of creating uh, probiotic supplements. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a strain of bifidobacterium called Bifidobacterium longum BB536, which is commercially available. There have been clinical trials done with BB536. It is helpful in limiting the symptoms of pollen allergy in adults and of preventing um, upper respiratory infections in children. Mm -hmm. And in both of those studies, in conjunction with those clinical benefits, there was an increase in the growth of F. prasnitsi associated with its use. Uh, There's another... um, type of bacterium called Bacillus coagulans, which is in the category of soil-derived organisms, mm-hmm. the spore formers. And there are studies with Bacillus coagulans in, uh, in elderly adults showing that there's an anti-inflammatory effect measured in blood associated with an increase in F. prasnitsi. So I think either of those or both of those is probiotics. Mm-hmm. can be helpful. Then when it comes to limiting the growth of Enterococcus fecalis, um, there are three natural products, well, probably more, but three of my favorites. Uh, two of them I use frequently with patients to alter inflammation, to decrease inflammation. I use them as part of my um, coronavirus preventive protocol mm-hmm. because they actually encourage, um, they support the activity of ACE2. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're very familiar. There's curcumin from the herb turmeric and resveratrol. Mm-hmm. Um, the commercial resveratrol mostly comes from Japanese knotweed. The food sources are mostly the red grapes and a number of, and of course, red wine. And um, there are a number of fruits and vegetables that have resveratrol. Uh, and then there's a substance called ursolic acid, another polyphenol that is found in many fruits and vegetables. Um, it's also used uh, as a dietary supplement by bodybuilders. Okay. And this is, um, this is found in it's found in celery, if I'm yes, thinking. it's okay. found in celery. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so those are things that I recommend um, that my patients do either for prevention or for treatment if they're sick. Uh, I haven't yet been able to determine the role that, that they might play 
in the long-haul COVID patients uh, because many of those, many long-haul COVID patients, if they adapt a healthy lifestyle, that is, they get enough rest, they, they exercise in a graded fashion, um, we'll start to notice improvements over time anyway. Okay. Now, my mom's going to listen to this episode and she's going to say, you know, Dr. Gallen said, drink red wine. Um, no, I'm, I'm not saying drink red wine. I'm just saying that that is one of the natural sources of resveratrol. Okay. And um, it is believed that resveratrol is responsible for the alleged health benefits okay. of red wine. The research that I've seen on resveratrol, they are using much higher dosage than what you would find in a typical glass of red wine. Well, you know, what's strange about the resveratrol research, I mean, there must be at least 50 randomized placebo-controlled trials mm -hmm. with it. The doses used are really variable. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they've demonstrated benefits at doses as low as 75 milligrams a day. Okay. But there are some studies that have used 2,000 milligrams a day. Um, so uh, I'm generally recommending about anywhere between 400 and 600 milligrams for my patients. Okay. And which is far more than you'd get from a couple of glasses of red wine. <laughs> Good to know. I think that's going to be important for the listeners to hear. Um, so I think it's, it's really cool to just see, uh, not cool, I guess. It's just interesting to see the impact that this, um, you know, COVID-19 can actually have and alter our gut bacteria in a really negative way that can promote inflammation. And like, ideally we, we can see that this, this could be something that we can prevent through the use of supplements, specifically probiotics. And you mentioned specific strains, and I've also seen research on uh, certain probiotics like lactobacillus being used, like is lactobacillus GG being used for influenza and things like that. Now, we're talking specific strains and supplements. What about probiotic-rich foods? Is this something that you would encourage um, clients to use if they were to have been infected by COVID and they're looking for resolve? Is that just a general health recommendation that you make? Well, for, for general health, um, I do think that there's a role for probiotic-rich foods. Specifically, what you do when someone has COVID-19, it's a little hard to know. Mm -hmm. uh, there just isn't, this is a very, um, this is a very shape-shifting kind of disease mm -hmm. in that um, simply looking at immune boosting is not what's needed. You really uh, and I try to explain that in a pretty detailed analysis in the coronavirus guidebook, because so much of the problem that occurs with COVID-19 is due to an overactive immune response. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's, it's my belief and a number of scientists share this belief that that occurs because of the loss of the, of ACE2, mm. the enzyme that acts as the viral receptor, which gets destroyed. Because ACE2 is a very uh, potent anti-inflammatory enzyme in its effects in the body. It's an immune modulator. It impacts on um, the heart, the lungs, the brain, the kidneys. Um, it's important in the liver and the GI tract. So my approach has been not so much to look to boost immunity. And, and I, I've 
this is the way I've believed since I started researching this in January of 2020, that immune boosting isn't the main approach. It should be support for ACE2 and its immune modulating effects. Mm. And that comes from diet. Um, it, it also supplements like curcumin and resveratrol. Um, and I think what we want to do is thread the needle. Mm-hmm. We don't want to tip things in one direction or the other. And you had mentioned, I, I was reading some of your work, and you I, and I could be misinterpreting this, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but addressing it at the protease level, where if you find, you know, specific, I know you're referring to like elderberry and melatonin, certain things that can address at the protease level. Can you explain that? Sure. There, um, I think in order to put that in context, what we really have to understand is that there are several steps involved in creating this disease. The first set of steps involves the ability of the virus to enter cells. Mm -hmm. Um, And that actually is a four-step process. There may be more than four steps, the binding to ACE2 being the third step. Once that happens and the virus gets into cells, then there's a whole process in which the virus takes over the cellular machinery, reproduces itself, and creates various proteins and enzymes. And the first step is the creation of this polyprotein that then breaks down into 16 different components or fragments. Mm -hmm. And a couple of those fragments disguise the virus so that the alpha interferon response is turned off. Now, in order for that to happen, within that polyprotein, there are two components that act as proteases. They're like the scissors that cut up the polyprotein. Mm. And the major one of those is called the main protease or 3CL protease. Uh, That's inhibited by elderberry, uh, by melatonin, by andrographis, an herb, a Chinese herb or an Ayurvedic herb that I use a lot in my practice. Um, I'm a little concerned about elderberry. I haven't seen any bad reactions to it. Just because elderberry is very immune boosting. And so what I've done is I had recommended that people use elderberry preventively. But as soon as they start getting sick, if they get sick, that they stop it. Because okay. uh, I don't want to tip the scale in, in favor of too much, too strong an immune response. That makes a lot of sense. So. What I'm listening, as a, as a listener, I would listen to this and think, okay, so there's so many different steps in, there's the preventative, there's the infection stage, there's so many different stages at which you could intervene and you could you know, take certain supplements and do certain things, but it seems like it would be really difficult to, to treat unless you were working with someone like yourself who could kind of help you through the process and know which stage of you know, post-infection Things like that to address it. In the coronavirus guide, I have tried to spell that out for people. Okay. So they could do it themselves or work with a practitioner who would then, of course, have their own practitioner would have her or his own interpretation of, well, let's do this, not that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, but I did try, I created this as something that would be helpful to people who weren't consulting me. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that was the whole idea behind it. Which was very nice of you. That is a great free resource for people to have. Well, I thought it was important. I also 
did it because I felt, because in doing it, I was able to organize my thinking about it. I mean, there are, there's just thousands of research papers and clinical studies. And how do you put all of that together, especially in a, in a comprehensive way? Um, that, that was my goal, to try and be comprehensive and organized and, uh, and come up with a plan that would help people cope with um, the tsunami of this pandemic. Yeah. Well, it's a wonderful resource, and I'll be sure to link it in the show notes so that people can access that. Now, a question for you. So we have, you know, the the probiotics, the gut microbiome. There's definitely that connection. There's this dysbiosis that we're seeing. What are you using to test um, or to look at these different bacterial changes or yeast overgrowth that are a result of this infection um, I personally use the GI map in my practice, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on using that as an assessment of, I more so use it for things like Candida or H. pylori. I don't usually use it as a true assessment of just your normal flora, but I'd love to hear your, your feedback on that. Um, right. Um, the, the, the main problem that I have with, first of all, the GI map um, is not licensed in New York. Mm-hmm so that I don't use it in my own practice. It also uses a technology for the bacteria, um, which is probably archaic or on the road to becoming archaic. Okay. Um, because it really just, the 16S sequencing technology doesn't really get you to the um, species level or the, and definitely not the strain level. Mm-hmm. Um, I do use stool testing um, with labs for the most part that require a doctor to order the test. Um, and, um, and, but, but then I interpret the results. I never rely on any of these labs to interpret the results for me. In fact, I kind of resent it when the lab tries to interpret the results. I like to see as much of the raw data as possible and draw my own conclusions. Yep. I'm the same way when it comes to clients. It's like, well, you know, my doctor said my thyroid's fine. I said, send, send me the labs. Let me see right. what the T4 and the T3. Yeah. Now, would it be a stretch to say that having a healthy gut microbiome could be a preventative measure that protects you from COVID-19? Oh, I don't think that's a stretch at all. For one thing, what are the main um, risk factors for getting sick with COVID-19? They're all risk factors that are related to an impaired microbiome, Uh, even age. People who age in a healthy fashion continue to have a young microbiome in their guts, whereas um, the infirmity that comes with age is associated with changes in the microbiome and in an inflammatory direction, exactly the direction that's associated with worse outcomes in COVID-19. The other conditions heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and high blood pressure. That quartet, um, for nutritionists, that's the metabolic syndrome, okay. right? That is the, that's insulin resistance. Now, we know that insulin resistance is associated with abnormalities in the gut microbiome. I mean, that's been well studied. So um, having a healthy microbiome is not only likely to protect you from 
getting sick with COVID-19. It's also likely to decrease the risk of your having any of these risk factors for, worth, for a worse outcome. And it's interesting, too, because I think with the pandemic, people are so focused on what can I do to avoid getting sick during the pandemic that really where our mindset should have been prior to this is just, you know, overall, how can I be healthy? How can I prevent things like metabolic syndrome? And I think it can be tougher, too, with a younger generation, because sometimes we're not thinking about the long term effects of some of the things that we're doing now and what that can look like down the road you know, or maybe we've never personally experienced any sort of health outcome like that. So we don't have the reality of that setting in. But, um, you know, now that we have the pandemic in play, people are concerned about how do I improve my immune system? How do I take care of my health? And if we have already adopted that mindset of wellness, then I think that we're setting ourselves up for, you know, not only prevention, but better outcomes, possibly um, post-infection. Yeah, I, I, Totally agree with that. Um, and um, it is true that a lot of people, relatively young people, are not thinking about their future health. In fact, that's something that I've sometimes said to patients of mine who are young and had health problems, was they, could, they should view this as a gift um, because this is helping them develop an awareness that can keep them healthy once we deal with the problems that they're confronting now. Yeah, I love that. Especially when you see who are the more vulnerable populations, um, it can get scary and it's scary and it, you know, not a means to scare people, but a means to yes, be a blessing and be assigned to prioritize your health um, in many ways. And it doesn't have to be complicated. You mentioned, you know, high fruits and vegetables in your diet, um, you know, certain compounds that you can find in foods that we eat, you know, those flavanols that are found in things like dark chocolate or many fruits and vegetables that we have with many different colors. Are there any other things that you recommend um, in general that specifically support the gut microbiome? I know in my practice, I see a lot of vitamin D deficiency. So we're always working on that as a priority. Yeah, well, vitamin D is especially important in the setting of COVID-19. Vitamin D, I had mentioned defensins as substances produced in the gut that regulate the microbiome. Vitamin D is important for the synthesis and activity of defensins. Uh, if there were one supplement that might mitigate the impact of COVID-19 in the world, it would probably be vitamin D. And, um, and I, I think it's been very irresponsible that um, there has not been in from government and the media a greater push to make sure that vitamin D deficiency does not is eliminated, yeah. especially I, during the winter. I see that as my my new second career is educating people on the importance of vitamin D. I had somebody. Um, you know, email me saying, I, I would love to see the research. And I just thought, oh my gosh, where do I start? There's tons of research on the benefits of vitamin D, but even also with COVID. I mean, we've seen so many different research articles coming out, looking at not only the prevention, but the treatment and reduced risk of mortality with COVID-19 right. and, and vitamin D deficiency. Right. One of the things, uh, people will always cite the negative studies, but you have to be really careful in looking at those because Truth in science always lies in the details, and I've seen this over and over again. Uh, 
um, in studies that say, oh, there's no effect here. Um, vitamin D works in people who start out with low levels and who, when they supplement, develop normal levels. You have to look at that group. If you, if you, if you put everybody else in there, people who are not deficient to begin with, or people who don't raise their levels when they take the supplements, you're not going to see an effect. And, and, and that's the kind of thing that's done over and over again. Mm, yeah, that's a really good point to keep in mind. So make sure your vitamin D levels are in the normal range, optimal range. Um, make sure you have your practitioner review those. That's another lab value that I like to see. They'll say, oh, my vitamin D was normal. And I'll say, send me the number. I just want to take a look at it. Now, I think that the world right now is in a really optimistic place because of the rollout of all these vaccines. I get a ton of questions from clients regarding whether I think that the vaccine is safe and if I think they should get it. And I would love to hear your professional opinion, as I know that you are incredibly well-versed on the research. Right. I I follow the vaccine literature very closely, and it kind of is dominating the discussion these days. And I get asked those same questions. Um, There is no doubt that the vaccines decrease mortality, hospitalization, and severity of illness um, with COVID-19. And that appears to be pretty equal for all of the vaccines. The extent to which the vaccines decrease mild or asymptomatic infection is not as clear. And, and even, in the, the, even at the best, the vaccines are not 100% effective. Mm-hmm. Um, once, you, once you roll them out into the real world, they don't perform quite as well as in the clinical trials, but actually have, the real-world data has been uh, better than I thought it would be for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And they actually seem to work pretty well at preventing, at decreasing transmission, okay. not just decreasing severity of illness, which is important. Um, the, there are side effects, of course, and there are side effects with any vaccine or medical procedure. Uh, I don't believe that the side effects of these vaccines in any way match up with the destruction caused by COVID-19. And uh, I recommend virtually all of my patients to get vaccinated. I have a couple of patients who are so fragile and hypersensitive Mm -hmm. and live their lives in seclusion anyway that I've said, yeah, you're better off not, you know, not rocking the boat right now. But for including my, I have a lot of allergic and hypersensitive patients, a lot of patients with chronic inflammatory disorders. Um, I I recommend vaccination for all of them. Here is what happens. Here's what's going to happen. The vaccines are not going to eliminate this pandemic. They're going to keep people from getting very sick. Um, but the pandemic is going to continue, and the presence of SARS-CoV-2 in our population in the U.S. is going to continue. It may become seasonal. It may fluctuate. It will fluctuate. We know. We already know that it's worse in winter than in summer. Not surprising. Um, but most countries in the world don't even have access to a vaccine. 
at this point in time. Um, and there are enough um, people with vaccine hesitancy that probably the best we'll do is to vaccinate um, 70% of the total population, maybe 80% if children get included. Um, the new mutations that are occurring will, to some extent, reduce the ability of the vaccines to eliminate infection mm -hmm. or transmission. Um, and so this virus is going to continue to circulate and it's going to mutate. It's going to, it's going to find ways to reproduce itself and spread, um, despite the fact that a significant percentage of the population have some degree of immunity. Mm -hmm. uh, and we are, we've already, we already see that happening. If you are not vaccinated, uh, as the people who have been vaccinated go about leading their normal lives, they stop wearing masks, they stop physical distancing, they start going to social events. Uh, if you want to live your life normally, you're going to be exposed to this virus. And you're not going to have the protection against severe illness offered by the vaccine. Uh, so I am generally recommending its use. I, I think it's important that the vaccines not be hoarded by the rich company countries. Uh, I mean, the U.S. is ahead of the curve because the vaccines that we're using are produced in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't have to go through the process of we're going to import it from here or there and, you know, and, and issues like that. So I do not believe that any of the sensationalistic forecasts about doomsday coming from vaccines has any merit. Okay. It's not as if they're totally baseless. These are considerations um, there are considerations that need to be made about the safe, the long-term and the short-term safety of the vaccines, aside from the efficacy. But there's a lot of data now. I mean, there have been over 100 million people vaccinated in this country. And, um, and the people in the clinical trials started getting vaccinated like nine months ago. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a lot of data, and we're not seeing any of those worst-case nightmare scenarios unfold. Mm -hmm. uh, so you won't be hearing very much from those people pretty soon. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's a really good thing. And I think your point about, you know, I think it's it's good to think, okay, there is some some light, at not at the end of the tunnel, but there's some light to start looking at this vaccine as a really positive thing, a way of us being able to, you know, engage with others again and, and be able to be social. But you know, there, there's a point you made there that this isn't going away. And, and this is a really good reason to say your diet, you know, is still important and your gut microbiome is still important. And you should still be focusing on those things and not see the vaccine as a way of, you know, okay, don't have to worry about it anymore. Don't have to take care of myself. I just take the vaccine and go about my daily life. Right. I mean, that, that what you've just described is a big problem in healthcare. You know, people who go on statins to lower their cholesterol gain weight because they start figuring, oh, I can eat anything I want yeah. now. Uh, um, so, yeah, the idea will, you know, let the technology solve the problem um, is uh, too common, unfortunately. And our jobs is to try and help people focus on um, the ways in, in which they can take control of their lives.
Yeah. And it's a really, it's a really empowering thing, you know, nutrition and wellness and, and physical activity and mental well-being. all of those tools are really powerful. And, you know, people will complain about not receiving the care that they want from a doctor, or not feeling heard and things like that. When there's so many things that we can do on our own that we do have control of, like you said. So. Yeah, absolutely. When I started um, doing moving into the area of nutritional medicine a few decades ago, I, um, one of the big inducements and one of the things that I noticed was you have someone with a problem and you like arthritis or high blood pressure, you put them on a drug. The drug that you give them is going to create side effects and may aggravate the other problem that they have. If you can deal with that problem nutritionally, you can solve multiple problems at once rather than creating new problems. And that is the beauty of a nutrition and lifestyle-based approach. Yes. Well, we can definitely align on that. And you've written many, many amazing books that I have been slowly making my way through. So I appreciate you for putting that work out there. So my last question is, what is your favorite childhood memory with food? (laughs) (laughs) My favorite childhood memory with food. Um, uh, uh, It's these... um, uh, kind of um, cheese. Um, we used to call, call them cheesems that my grandmother would make. Okay. And um, uh, throughout my life, I've really liked sharp cheeses. Okay. Um, not that I always eat them because they don't always like me. But um, <laughs> I know, but I know that really feeling. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. And where can people find you if they are interested in learning more about you and your practice? Um, where would you direct them? Well, I have a website. It's drgallon.com, D-R-G-A-L-L-A-N-D.com. And um, it has all of the papers that I've written, the, um, a lot of information about talks I've given, and the principles that guide my practice. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Gallon, so much for taking the time to come on here and share your expertise and the research that you've done. It's very clear that you've put a lot of time and energy into this and to better serve your clients and other people as well. So thank you again. Well, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to share this with your listeners. My pleasure. They will be very grateful. So thank you again. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Dr. Gallon. He is a wealth of knowledge If you are interested in working one-on-one with me to improve your gut health and get to the root cause of why you aren't reaching your health goals, visit nutritionrewired.com, or you can also find my book, Rewire Your Gut. It's an excellent resource for anybody who's looking to improve their health. I had a client implement some of the recipes for even just a week, and they noted that their bowel movements dramatically improved. So diet is powerful, and they did not completely eliminate other foods from their diet. They just incorporated and added some of the recipes from my book. So I highly recommend it, nutritionrewired.com. I also have my book, Rewire Your Sweet Tooth, which was a huge hit this past Easter weekend. The carrot cake muffins, the sun butter egg cups. Oh my gosh, so delicious. So thanks again for tuning in. And as always, don't forget to share the health.